Today I have the pleasure to talk to Satnam Singh, who we started the first podcast episode with back like, I don't know, like five or six months ago. Um, and ironically, he's also now the first person that we're going to have on this new kind of format, which is video and audio. So first of all, obviously, thanks you to Satnam for making the time to do this. Um, I know you're very busy with various art projects and other things that you're working on. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be back here. Not a problem. Um, so today, obviously, our topic is by Nandalal. Um, if anyone's followed Satnam or myself, I'm sure they would have heard us mention him a few times. Um, he has a quite a special place within Sikh history. So most people know him as a poet, I guess, or, or a Gavi, yeah, Gavi, so a poet of Vedantpur uh, Darbar, Guru Gobind Singh Ji's Darbar. Um, and by Nandalal is also often associated with the court of Aurangzeb. Um, most famously because he is said to have left that court to join Guru Gobind Singh Ji. So perhaps then we start with his upbringing and his life. So I know that there are two different um, birth years that are given for him. So one sixteen thirty three and one sixteen forty two. Um, like, what else would you be able to tell me about kind of his early years and his upbringing? So Panandalal uh, was born in uh, in Afghanistan, the city of uh, Ghazni. Um, now, the interesting thing about Ghazni is that it wasn't at the time, from what I've been able to gather, it, it, it wasn't a big city per se, but it was connected well with the trading routes uh, internally in Afghanistan. So you could say the city where he was born was connected with, with Iran, with Russia, with India, so, um, and so forth. So like you can imagine, like Gurnanak, that there was a lot of influx of traders, of mystics, uh, of, of caravans and, and so forth. So when Bainandala grew up, it was kind of a multi-ethnic uh, and very, very diverse community he grew up with. Um, and Bainandala was actually from a Hindu background. So like most people, probably a lot of your listeners uh, will assume that because he was an Afghan Sikh, uh, he was he was from a Muslim background. Yeah, yeah, I would have assumed the same. Exactly, and also because he, he when people read his his verses, they're very Islamic in nature. Like the words that they use for for the divine is very Islamic. The yeah. words they use for the guru is mola and so forth. Like very from the Arab Arabic world, but he was well, actually from a Hindu background. Um, I, I guess it's also because of the fact that most of his education, or I'm sure some of his education was in languages like Sanskrit and and things that we may associate with Hinduism, but um, a lot of his early education, like I think Kavi Santok Singh mentions that he masters Persian and he learns a number of Islamic texts at a really early age. So like, is that just because education at the time is controlled by the Mughal empire rather than it being to do with him being Muslim, obviously, because he's not Muslim. Um, well, we know from, from later sources that by Nandala's father was a scholar himself, um, and his father was probably aligned with, uh, with the establishment in Ghazni. Um, so he was from a highly educated background and probably also like from a scholastic. Now, there was a lot of, back then, as compared to today, there was a lot of Hindus um, in Afghanistan, especially the Qatris, uh, because they were basically in control of the... Um, of the bureaucracy at the time. So they were like doing all the bureaucratic work for the, for the different governors and so forth. But they were also in, in charge of the trade route. So like back then there was this busy traffic of, of 
Hindu Kapitalist traders from going like in between Afghanistan, Iran, Turkey, India, uh, Eastern India, and so forth, just trading all around. And this is also something that most Sikhs haven't really been thinking about with the later Qatari conversions into Sikhism, that you suddenly have these new Sikhs with huge networks, like on a very big regional scale, uh, obviously spreading Sikhi throughout the, uh, the continent. But sorry, that's a different uh, matter. But what we know from, like you said, with Kavishan Doksing, uh, he actually mentions um, in the Suresh Prakash uh, about the early uh, education of, um, of Bainandalal. And he said that he had his his early education in in the mosque, which is very interesting because obviously he's a Qatari Hindu, so why is he educated at the mosque? Um, but what we learn is that he, he was good at memorizing books. He was good at, uh, like he was very eloquent um, his, like in terms of like bringing forth arguments and being concise in what he was trying to describe and so forth. He was like known for that already uh, as a child. Um, and you can imagine the kind of curriculum that would have been present in a, in a, in a, in a town, not a city, but like a town like Ghazni, uh, where there were such a big influx of traders and um, mystics and Islamic scholars. So we're talking about the Quran, we're talking about the Hadith, we're talking about mystic literature from the Sufis. Uh, that would have been Ibn Arabi, Rumi, Hafiz, uh, Khayyam, and, and so forth. So we're talking about like very big... Uh, cultural uh, texts that are very definitive of, of the Mughal Empire as well. Yeah, well just moving on from his education then, um, I, I came across that his, so it's reported that his mother passed away in 1650 and his father passed away a couple of years later. Now, depending on when we set Bainandala's birth year, that then kind of has a big impact on how old Bainandala is at this point. Um, if we go with the first year, which is 1633 he's roughly just shy of kind of 20 years at this point um and if we're going with 42 he's around about 10. um considering that he's said to have left ghazni um and found employment in the mughal court at agra i'm probably gonna sway on the side of the fact that he's around 20 at this point um and he was probably born around 1633 it just makes sense um I can't imagine a 10 year old getting employment. Um, perhaps like I could be wrong and someone might have evidence somewhere. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think that we, we will go with that. Um, so it said that he gets employment at, with the Mughal court in Agra with Bahadur Shah, um, who was to obviously become the future Mughal emperor and actually have quite a close relationship with Guru Gobind Singh Ji. Now, I've ne I never actually had come across until I had to put the research together for this podcast that um, Bainandala's parents died whilst he was kind of so young. Do you know anything about why they had passed away or what led to those events? No, uh, from what I've read, I've never, um, I've never come across any information either about his father. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't find much and I just could have consistently find mentions that they had died. Why or what had happened? Nothing, nothing much. Okay, so again, I think it makes sense if we're going with the earlier age because it's said that when Bainandlal then kind of moves on, um, he gets married in Multan around the age of kind of 40-ish. Um, he has his first child um, in 1673 called Lakbat Rai um, and two years later he has another son called Lila Ram, um, which is interesting because I never knew Bainandlal had children. Um, I wonder if they had children and if there are any descendants around today. Um, 
do, like, do you know of anyone or, or anything about that? There was a Sikh scholar professor, uh, Gandhi, he wrote a book called the Kuliat Nandalal Goya. Um, he wrote like 50 years ago, and I think he mentions the offspring of Pai Nandalal in his time, like saying which city they were from and, and so on and so forth. Um, and as we go on later in the uh, in the podcast, uh, we'll talk about the descendants in the early 1900s who um, started to see that after the fall of the Sikh empire, uh, the Sikhs forgot how to how to speak Persian. So kind of they kind of dissociated themselves from the writings of Pai Nandalal. So the descendants of Pai Nandalal got into a sort of panic. So they started to translate all of his writings into Punjabi. We can talk about that uh, later. This is one of the one of the books. Just quickly for a second, before we move on, just staying on the topic of Persian language, do you also think the fact that Sikhs uh, kind of on a general sense have moved away from it is because of its association with Islam? Definitely. That is one of the main reasons. Uh, in the 1700s, um, obviously the main enemies of the, uh, of the Sikhs uh, had Muslim backgrounds, whether it was the Afghans, the Iranians, or the Mughals. Um, so that also meant that uh, these, these writings were like considered enemy ground, so to speak. So that must have played a role one way or the other. I can give you one example as well. We can dive into that later. But um, if you look into the other uh, Muslim translations by the Sikhs in the 1700s, you can see that um, like in the translation, the Sikh translations of, 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 of uh, religious Muslim material, uh, when they translate the passages where in the original it, it would have the name of the Prophet Muhammad. Instead of saying in the translation, uh, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam used to say, um, instead of having that religious phrase which was in the original, they would just, the Sikhs would just write, um, the saintly people have said. You see, like that's an interesting way of getting about that the, the mul or the, uh, the root text is actually Muslim source. So they kind of hide the Prophet Muhammad's even being mentioned here just by saying the saintly people. So once Bainandlal joins um, Bahadur Shah's court, there's kind of a tradition that, uh, that mentions that Aurangzeb um, had assembled his court's kind of finest mullahs and Islamic scholars of Delhi and have them interpret verses of the Quran. Um, each of the Quranic scholars came up with different interpretations based on the traditional Islamic commentaries, yet none of them are said to have satisfied um, Aurangzeb. After hearing about the Emperor's distress, fire behind the Shah, Bainandalal volunteers to study this verse and comes up with an interpretation. So after the Emperor hears this, or, or hears kind of Bainandalal's ex explanation, he's so fascinated that he wants to meet Bainandalal. Um, and it's at this point that Bainandalal is given the title Mullah Goya by Aurangzeb. Um, now, before we carry on any further, can you just explain to those listening what that means and why that title is important? Like, because we all obviously, by none, we, a lot of us will say by Nandlal Goya. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily know what that term means. Um, a lot of people may just think it's a second name or something. Um, so before we move on, like, what, what could you tell me about that? Yeah, so the the uh, the term mullah is a is an honorific, I think you say in English. So it's a very like it's something you it's a title that you give to very revered people, obviously like the sheikhs of Islam or the imams uh, and so forth. Um, so in Aurangzeb's court, he would have the ulama, which was like the uh, the scholarly circle uh, surrounding him, 
um, kind of giving me advice and giving him, um, yeah, basically advice on how to govern. And if he was like transgressing the laws of Islam, they would like step in and tell him what the, the true intention of the Sharia law would be. And and these were called the mullahs or the, yeah, the ulama, you can say. Um, so it's quite significant here that, that even though he's a non-Muslim, that he's granted this title because obviously it's not, like this is not, it's like the word bandit in the Hindu tradition. It's not something you just call people who just read one book or uh, or just like sat on read articles on Google. This is something that takes years upon years of scholastic research and study. And, and then you're giving the title of bandit. And in the same way, in the Islamic tradition, uh, after years and years and years of study and debate and study and debate, then you're given depending on where you are in the Muslim world, you're given a title, it could be the alim, it could be the mullah, it could be, uh, and so on and so forth, sheikh. Uh, um, so so this is quite significant in the Sikh source, this is from the Bansavi Nama, it's quite significant that even the Sikhs have recorded um, that he was given this uh, very Islamic title despite being a non-Muslim. And how does that also kind of play into the fact that Bainadal becomes kind of one of the most famous scholars of Guru Gobind Singh's court, considering he's given a title by Aurangzeb, and it's, all, it's, it's actually a title that most of us Sikhs still use. Like, how, how does that kind of, I, I'm not, I don't necessarily think it doesn't connect, but as in like, how does that kind of um, fit together, considering a lot of people would see Aurangzeb and Guru Gobind Singh as water and oil like they just don't mix um so like what, what are your views on that i think again like this is from historical perspective if you read the surish prakash if you read the pansavli nama these are like some of the early uh not early but like some of the uh, pre-colonial uh, texts that we have that talk about by nandalal um the purpose of, of, of these information being transmitted is because they want to show like here's a prize we had a huge intellectual in the Mughal Darbar who came to Anandpur. Uh, I see, yeah. It's so like it someone is, from Oxford University turning up. Coming to a Gurdwara and yeah, doing Langar doing Seva there, right? <laughs> so, I mean, in that, that's probably, that was the intention of, of the um, of the uh, of the authors in mentioning this. Um, because if you look in the Surah Prakash as well, and some of the other accounts that we get of the scholars who came, the Kavis who came from, from the Mughal Darbar, or just in general, scholars that came to Nanpur, most of those that are mentioned are those that came from Delhi, from the Mughal Darbar. So we have Kuvraish as well. We have Painandalal, and there's a few others. So there's this idea that we want to show that even at the top of power, the Warangzeb's rule, um, people were still flocking to Nanpur in very high numbers. Just being devil's advocate, is it also the fact that because they came from the Mughal Darbar, they weren't already known in the sense that they had created a like a record there, and so by the time they come to the Anandpur Darbar, people looking at it from like like for example, say you or I looking at it historically, um, we'd know of them because of the fact that they'd come from like uh, the place of power essentially of the time um whereas there are other govies of the Dalbar which are lesser known and that's perhaps because they haven't come from kind of like central power yeah that is definitely the case with some of them there's no doubt about that definitely okay well this is something that i found really interesting when um 
researching find on that and again it could be wrong um and if anyone has any information like feel free to let me know um i found it quite interesting because it also kind of makes sense by is often depicted as being this really saintly character um perhaps because he's also kind of quite commonly associated with with scholarship and and things like that um however according to lala Barmanand um, in his work, there was a description of Bainandlal actually partaking in military service. Um, it said that Bainandlal led an army of several thousand strong against a force of 7,000. Um, there were 3,000 casualties and his military service is said to have lasted several years. Um, however, kind of, there wasn't much more information I could find um, between his, between kind of the story of Odingzib and the evacuation of Anandpur Sahib in kind of 1904, it's quite difficult to figure out where Painandal is and what he's doing. We obviously know he's alive, um, but he's somewhere in the mix of everything. Um, so when does Painandal then move, transition from Aurangzeb to Gurdwoman Sinji? I'm assuming it's sometime after Aurangzeb's death, but again, correct me if I'm wrong. No, no, this is, um, so Painandal, when he comes to, uh... So Anandpur Sahib, he's a very, he's an old man at the time. So he must have been at least 50 years of age. Um, so obviously he lived a whole life full of experiences and joy and tragedies and so forth. He, he, he's been through all that and uh, traumas before coming to Anandpur Sahib. And when you talk about him having led military battles and so forth, um, this is in those years before he came to Anandpur. Um, and even some of the books that he brought with him to Anandpur, the books that or Sikhs are celebrating today, they weren't even written during uh, the Anandpur period. These were some he wrote in Multan, and then later on he brought with him. And that's why like, there's no Sikh content in them at all. Um, but Sikhs, because they were associated with Bainandalal, obviously they kept copying these manuscripts and they've passed them down all the way till today, right? So we don't know exactly when Bainandalal entered the Anandpur court. Uh, I've heard it was roughly around the 1680s. So Guru Gobind Singh Ji must have been around 20, 25 years at the time. Um, and obviously, Bainandlal being double the age of that, obviously, you can see like age-wise, there's a discrepancy here. Um, but we know that Bainandlal, even despite having this very this impressive CV, he still joins the entourage of the Guru uh, and joins all the other uh, poets that were there uh, but very very quickly he he rises to the top and that's why we remember him amongst amongst all the court poets he's the one that we remember the most uh, today why do you think that is is that because of the fact he already had such a reputation or the fact that a lot of his texts have remained intact um so for argument's sake there are a lot of poets that i'm sure you're aware of um in the Dabad, but we don't have any of their works um and that obviously leads itself to then them not being kind of focused on and their names not being as, as prevalent so with Bainandala do you think the fact like is and again this this is a slight overarching statement to get the point across but I think you'll get get the point which is like do you think a lot of his fame comes from the fact that he is most known in terms of he, he obviously had quite an illustrious career in the Mughal court before coming to the court of the Guru. Um, or, is, or are his works just actually that amazing? It's probably a mixture of both, but I would have to pass that question because it's quite a mystery. Like despite people, the Sikhs not knowing the language that he's writing in, um, 
and not just knowing not knowing the language, they probably don't know the cultural references that he's making either. And despite that, still he became, along with Bai Gurdas, his his writings have been elevated to Bani and considered a, a commentary of the Guru Granza, which is in itself is quite an extraordinary feat. Um, yeah, when you put it like that, I think it puts into context actually how insane that is because you've taken a Hindu Qatari uh, educated in basically Islamic texts and, and education and everything that goes with that, having an illustrious career under Aurangzeb before then moving over into the court of the Guru and becoming one of the most famous poets. Yeah, I, I, I think most people listening could, will appreciate that as well. Um, but, but also, uh, if I may add, one thing that's interesting is that there is this book called the Memal Prakash, and this was written during the... Um, it's like a, I think it's like a thousand page book on the, the life of the Gurus. Um, and it was written in the early years of the Missile period. So this is almost 70 years after Painandala uh, passes away. In this book, it actually gives you the background details of Painandala, like how he grew up, what he was doing as a child, uh, some, some stories from his life as well. And the reason I'm mentioning this is that this is quite significant because from what I know, there's no other... Uh, there's no other account in any Sikh scribe, scripture or writings where it details the early life of a Sikh. Obviously, we have the early life of the Gurus, where it gives you the early life of a, of a Sikh. Not even a Sikh. He wasn't a Sikh at the time. So this is actually a Hindu that they're describing, a Hindu upbringing or slash culturally Muslim upbringing. And then 50 years later, he becomes a Sikh, right? This is very significant. And again, you have to ask yourself, why is it that this story was brought into the Mema Prakash uh, 70 years after he passes away? And one of the reasons, I think, is that these little fine details of just having his early life recorded in a Sikh writing of such a grand magnitude, like the, like the Mema Prakash and later Suresh Prakash, that obviously helped in, in bringing out his name um, to, to large groups of, of people. One thing that's also interesting, I was just going through my, my book collection just to see like what what books do I have that mention Painandalal. Uh, and there's there's a lot of these um, lesser known books. This is called uh, Sharda Puran. Um, a lot of these lesser known books, um, maybe some of them just a few pages long and others like really bulky. And many of them, for some reason or the other, they just mentioned Painandalal in the beginning. Um, or like having some sort of role, prominent role in, in Anandpur at the time. So I think and the, the question here is not whether Painandala wrote these books or he had anything to do with these books or not. But the thing is that his name is just name dropped by all these different authors, different writers across caste boundaries and so forth. So I think that in itself, and I think the authors back then didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know like the kind of impact it would have later on. But just because his name is just name dropped, here, there, here, there, in between 10 years apart, that obviously in the late 800s, 1800s, meant that his, his, his writings became Barney uh, and was considered a, a commentary of, of Sikh uh, scripture along with Bai Gurdas, right? No, definitely. Um, but just then kind of moving on with the narrative of Bainandal. So I kind of came across a couple of narratives. So on one hand, there's this, an argument to say that, um, so after Guru Sahib passes on, um, Vainandalal basically moves on to Delhi 
um, and I think by Guldas Ji is with them as well. Um, eventually, then it's the it, the narrative kind of splits into two. Um, on one hand, it said that around about 1710, Bai Nandalal retires um, in Multan. Another historical narrative suggests that Bai Nandalal didn't retire in Multan in 1710, um, but remained on until uh, Bahadur Shah's death in Lahore in 1712, um, and then joined Bahadur Shah's son um, and, and came to Delhi. Now, what, like, what could you tell me then about kind of his later years and his passing. So again, this is like where the tradition and the memories of his family members later on, they kind of clash. Um, but if you look at the early writings, what we do know is that by Nandalal, because he was a gifted Persian scholar, um, he did spend time in the Dili Darbar of, of the Mataji's, Gurgobas and his widows. He spent time there acting as a, you could say, a diplomat or an ambassador of the Sikh Panth um, in communication with the Mughal emperors and the Mughal uh, establishment. Um, so he was a kind of ambassador for the Sikhs at the time. We also know he continued uh, singing guzzles and composing poetry uh, and so forth, because this is recorded in later Sikh uh, writings. So this idea that he went to Multan at some point and created a school that kept running till the end of the Sikh empire, I think that is his family member, sorry, his descendants who gave that information and passed that onwards. Um, I don't see like these two necessarily uh, excluding one another. It is possible he went after the destruction of Anandpur. It is possible that he went to Multan because he used to work there for so many years, like 20 years of his life before he became a Sikh. Um, it is possible he went there just to like get some peace of mind and what he had just experienced at Anandpur. He opened up a school uh, because that's what he did. He was a scholar. Uh, and later on, when, when, when things had settled, um, or there was a need for his skills because he knew the Mughal Darbar and he knew the Sikh Pant as well. He could be a diplomat in between Banda Bahadur and, 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 and the Mughal establishment. So I'm, I'm thinking like, whether it was one or the other, what is important is that he, he actually actually kept on his skills as a Persian speaking diplomat, communicator, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, and that was why I guess also... Um... Or that is his integral role in kind of the history as well, which, which, which obviously um, adds up. Now you mentioned Mema Prakash. I've just got a quote from Mema Prakash. Um, it's written by Surup Das Bala. Um, the quote follows: Nandalal performed two tasks. Simultaneously, he studied Persian and acquired knowledge, thereby sharpening his mind. Nandalal became a proficient scholar of Persian reading and memorizing a large number of Persian books. Um, he became privy through constant study and practice to the knowledge and etiquette required of the royal divad. Through such dedication, he became a renowned servant of the court, securing a post in the retinue of the prince, whom he would later, whom the world would later call Bahadur Shah. He was appointed the Shahar's midwunchi, and his reputation increased day by day. And it's, it, I find what I find interesting about that, and I think you alluded to it earlier, is is that it's a Sikh text, Sikh text praising a Hindu who's educated in Persian Islamic studies. And I just think that that encapsulates so much of our history perfectly in terms of the complexity and multiplicity of identity just captured in that one quote. Um, and I, yeah, I, I kind of um, encourage everyone to go and read uh, Memar Bagash because it's, it's just full of information. Now, so just going back then to um, 
we mentioned about the tradition associated with Aurangzeb and by Nandalal giving Aurangzeb this beautiful commentary on a particular verse of the Quran. Um, like, what do you know about that? Is it just kind of a tradition that's arose over the years or is there some type of historical um, like kernel, like some type of historical origin to it? Yeah, so the story of, of, of uh, interpreting this verse of the Quran, unfortunately, the, the um, our historians haven't written which verse that they were talking about. Um, and obviously, being interested in history, this is like one of the things I was quite interested in trying to figure out what verse was it and what interpretation did he come up with and so forth. Um, but in the Bansavli Nama, which is here. Um, this is like one of the first major accounts of Bainandala's life um, in the early years of the of the missile rule. And this account is mentioned in there. So the first account that we have of Bainandala, this Munsha Goya uh, story is mentioned in there. So it, it has very early uh, roots, so to speak. It's not something that was added on later. We have this tradition Again, coming from text like Bhatsri Lama, where Bainandalal gives this beautiful commentary on a quote from the Quran. But at the same time, there's a tradition that says Bainandalal fled the court of Aurangzeb due to the persecution at the hands of Aurangzeb. So how do you, or as a historian, kind of tie those two together? Because on one hand, it says Aurangzeb is someone who is open to uh, discussion, philosophy, uh, Poetics, politics, etc. But then on the other hand, you're kind of thinking this dude is just a complete like wasteland, like totalitarian um, douchebag. How, like, how does how does that connect? Well, um, I think one thing that's interesting is that Louis Fennec, uh, who's, who's like the main scholar of Nandalal in the world today, um, in his book uh, The Darbar of the Sea Gurus, which I recommend you all to 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 buy. Um, he, in one of his footnotes, he talks about, which is a very interesting source, he talks about uh, Aurangzeb actually being quite, uh, like, he would often ask his courtiers and his uh, court poets, uh, or whoever was working there, about the interpretation of specific verses. And if, and if he wasn't, uh, if he wasn't uh, satisfied with what they could come up with, there he, Louis Fennec gives some uh, very interesting sources where Aurangzeb, he then gives out commands to his province governors all across the Indian empire, asking them to like, come up with an interpretation of specific Quranic verses. So this is from the Mughal court itself that we can see this trend was prevalent in the time of Aurangzeb that he used to, again, challenge his own courtiers about uh, Quranic verses. Um, so it's an interesting story that the story is that after Bainandalal then comes up with an interpretation to the satisfaction of uh, Aurangzeb, uh, Aurangzeb is really happy. He's really um, he's just like proud that the Quran contains so much beauty and so forth. And then he finds out that this wasn't even, this didn't come from one of his own uh, Islamic scholars uh, from, his, from his own ulama. It came from a, yeah, a non-Sikh. Sorry, a non-Muslim, uh, non-Muslim, yeah. And then it angers him. It it really frustrates him, and he considered it as like a like a insult, insult. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like an insult to Islam. That how can a non-Muslim have so much knowledge? And then because of all these honor 
dynamics that were prevalent at the time still are prevalent in that part of the world. Uh, he says that we, we need to bring him into the fold of, of Islam. Uh, otherwise, it's like a grave injustice to, to the religion of Islam. And then, and then he, this is where the family memoirs of the uh, of the family uh, clashes with what the Sikh traditions or the Sikh historians have said. Um, but what they do agree on, it, however, in any case, is that Bainandlal refuses to be a, a Muslim, uh, and then he leaves during the night, and then he ends up in Anandpur. Um, what do the uh, Islamic commentaries state about what happened? And because you obviously said that there's a conflict between the two. Um, so what is that conflict? Sorry, it's, it's not a conflict. That was a wrong. It was a wrong word. It's just like in in in, this, in the family memoirs, how how these descendants have narrated it in the early 1900s. They say Bainanlal wasn't alone. He had a student, a Muslim student, with him, uh, Riyazuddin. His name was. And both of them sit there and discuss back and forth, what do we do? What do we do? And then both of them decide, let's just leave the court. And then both of them come to Anandpur. Um, and when I said like there's a clash of conflicts, because Ghiyasuddin, whoever he was, he's not mentioned from what I know in any of the Sikh sources. So he's kind oh, of been written out of history for some I reason. I see what you mean. Okay. Yeah, he's been written out of history. Uh, and then... Uh, in, in the family tradition and the oral tradition that were passed on from father to son, then we have Bainandalal and we have his student Ghiyasuddin. Um, and even though he was written out of history and forgotten, like if you read any Wikipedia article or any, like the name Ghiyasuddin, from my understanding, it doesn't really appear anywhere. Uh, so just to counter that, in the Anandpur Art Project, uh, we have a painting of Bainandalal. And in it, obviously, we put Khiyasuddin. <laughs> so just just staying with, with Bainanla's student, what can you tell me about him? Because I'll be honest, that's the first I've heard of him. Um, so who is he? Like, what, what is his background? What does he do? Um, like, what, what can you tell me? From what I... Um... From what I remember uh, reading, obviously he's from a Muslim background because of his name, Riyaz Uddin. Um, he is a younger uh, man. Um, he's an official in the Mughal Empire as well. So, so he is a highly educated person. Um, and obviously, being highly educated, he could also recognize the talents of Bainandalal and thereby become a student, right? He seems, from what I've read in the in the memoirs of his uh, family descendants, he seems to have been quite a cultured man, quite a refined man. Uh, obviously, being in the Sangat of Bainandlal, he would have... You have to be. Yeah, exactly. Okay, no, fair. Thank you for that. Now, just then, obviously, Bainandlal is known for uh, being a poet and a scholar and just kind of mentioning a handful of his texts. Um, there's the Divani Goya, the Zindagi Nama, um, I'm not going to pronounce this one, but it's English translation, it's exposition of terms. Um, you've then got another Ars one. Fals, yeah. say, say that again. Yeah, the Ars Ulul Fals, yeah. Yeah, I, I'd rather leave it to someone who can pronounce it properly. Um, and then we have the Jodh Bagas, the Ganj Nama, um, and the Dandakha Nama. Now, just rewinding slightly and going back to the, the, just going back to some of those texts, I think one of the quotes that, um, I found quite, or some of the quotes that I found quite interesting is there's one from the Vani Goya, um, apart from truth slash the divine, there's no other word will ever come from the lips of Goya because he is truth offering God giving. Um, 
again, some of his other texts get quite long. Um, one of them is 1300 verses almost. Um, and they combine Persian, Arabic, and quite a lot less often, obviously, as we've already explored, it's because of his education, um, Indic or, or Hindu terminology, so to speak. Now, before we move on to the Sikh text, so I think a lot of the audience will be more uh, aware of Jodh Pagas, Ganjanama, and especially Tankhanama, because that's, as you've already mentioned, that's almost on par with Gurbani in terms of its kind of respect in the community. Um, what could you tell us about the, the Persian or the previous text even, because obviously Persian is used throughout, um, but yeah, what could you tell me about the, the non-Sikh text, so to speak? Yeah, so historians have divided this text, like you say, into two categories. One is those that are distinctively Sikh, those that mention the gurus by name. Like there's no discussion, these are Sikh texts. And then on the other hand, there's like four or five books um, that are, it's a bit more tricky to, uh, to prove that these are Sikh texts because they use very sophisticated uh, Islamic or Sufi uh, vocabulary. So like you have to be a really serious student in order to point out where and how is this a Sikh text. Um, so one of them is obviously the Divan, uh, the Divani Goya, um, because it, like I said in the, in, in the beginning, a lot of the words that are used for the Guru, for instance, it's not Sat Guru or the Jagad Guru and so forth, but rather it's, uh, it's the Murshidul Alameen, the Rahmatul Muznabeen, uh, which are more like, typically you would associate these titles with, with the high-ranking uh, Shia Imams of the Shia Islamic traditions, or maybe to some extent, maybe even the Prophet Muhammad. So again, like, how do you know that these are Sikh texts and they're, so how do you know, and how do you know that these are Sikh texts and they're not Muslim texts and the Sikhs just took them in? And then again, it requires quite a lot of um, quite a lot of theological, uh, metaphysical groundwork in order to dive out and call out the sea content. And but again, Louis Fennec has done quite a lot of that uh, in order to show in what way is this actually, even though apparently looking like a Sufi verse, how is it actually subverting Sufi ideals uh, and then presenting Sikhi as, a, as an alternative? To, uh, to the Sufi path. So, so Divani Goya is one example, like a lot of the, your followers, a lot of your listeners and the followers who've been listening to Kavali, you will obviously notice that in a lot of songs, uh, Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan or whoever, he will sing or recite verses like Mola, like he will sing and do a lap of Mola, Mola. <laughs> This is a verse that's this is a word that's very prominent in the uh, in in the Persian writings of um, of uh, of Bainandalal. And again, if you go into Sikh history, uh, this verse is not really that prevalent to use about the gurus, but it's very prominent to use about uh, Imam Ali or uh, some of the Sufi sheikhs uh, over history. Um, so again, like. You can ask yourself, why are these texts not mentioning Guru Gobind Singh, even though our tradition says they're talking about Guru Gobind Singh. They talk about the beloved, they talk about surrendering yourself to your teacher, they talk about giving your head uh, to your teacher and so forth. Like these are very, for any Sikh reading it, they will obviously say this is talking about surrendering yourself to Guru Gobind Singh. But why is his name not mentioned uh, anywhere? 
um, again, this is where um, a lot of historians and a lot of uh, commentators and so forth have tried to call out, how do we know that he's talking about Guru Gobind Singh Ji? But, like, correct me if I'm wrong, like, um, my understanding of uh, Sufism, a lot of it just comes from reading Bulli Shah and listening to Nasrat Fatih Ali Khan, who happens to sing a lot of Bulli Shah, ironically. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of the language is quite commonly uh like it's a, it's non-religious in terms of it talks about uh being drunk on the wine of the beloved like it's very much about a love relationship with the divine rather than it being a relationship with um some type of like figurehead or like a religious god figure i, I don't quite know how to put it but i think you you, you get the, the gist of it um and so i think the kind of interesting bit about what you've just mentioned is, is that people today are looking back at a Sufi text, Sufi text, so to speak, from then, and trying to make it fit a modern religious box, because I think, as you mentioned, it's quite difficult to be like, all right, well, where in this verse does it mention Guru Gobind Singh Ji? Well, I mean, that's another example, like, um, because a lot of the metaphors that are used by by Nandalal, they don't they don't come from the Indic world, so to speak, or the Hindu world in terms of Sanskrit literature. A lot of the the, the metaphors that he uses is actually very prominent in, in in the classic Sufi literature of the time. So, like this idea of the wine bearer, the the tavern, I think you call it, Yasaki. Um, this is something that by Nandalal talks about a lot. Like, oh bartender, give me the yeah. wine pour. Yeah, exactly. This is this is very prominent in Sufi writings. I think Hafiz is the first one to, to begin this. And then later on, uh, most Sufis would write in that kind of style. Again, you don't see it much. You probably do with some Braj Pasha literature, but you don't see it that much. This is a very Persian. Um, and another example, but we can say, yeah, surely he appropriates the, uh, the language. But at other times he does transgresses the standards of, of Sufis and Muslims, you can say. So this is where you can say, this is definitely not written by a Muslim. Um, let me give you an example. So, like there was this tradition that good poetry would uh, obviously reference earlier poets. Same with scholars today, I'll quote a previous scholar and that in that way strengthen my own argument. And old poets, they would sometimes take poetry from a, another poet and then just refine the words or make it better or change the verb or something similar so that any refined person would be able to say ah this verse is from uh, from Hafiz or from Rumi but obviously by Nandalal is just refining the rhythm or it's kind of like name dropping him without mentioning his name and so forth this was a very refined thing to do because obviously firstly you show that you've read these books doing so and obviously the one listening also because he's able to catch it and recognize it and identify it he's also exhibiting his own skills and how much he's read right because again it's a whole universe of references that most people won't be able to get now when i say that by nandal he goes a bit further than what normal muslim poets would do is that he does that with the quran so he goes in and takes a Quranic verse and then he changes it and makes the rhythm even better, uh, makes the rhyme even better. 
and Muslims historically, they would never touch the Quran because there is this principle that the Quran is like the highest literacy of Arabic language and it can't be surpassed. And like, it's a challenge to the whole world that you can never do anything as fine as the Quran. And then you have Bainandalal just taking a Quranic verse um, and then changing it for the better. So there's this verse in, um, in one of the books, I can't quite remember which one it is. And it goes something like, uh, and again, if you just read it and translate it word for word, it just sounds like a very beautiful description of, uh, of the gurus. But it is, this is a paraphrasing of a Quranic verse. And if you put the Quranic verse side by side with, the, uh, with, with this verse of Painandalal, you can definitely see that the rhyme is much better than Painandalal. Again, here you can see this is not written by a Muslim because Muslims wouldn't ever try to do that. It potentially be dangerous, right? Yeah. Be accused of, of shirk, of uh, disoffending Islam, and then obviously uh, get executed in Mughal India. So again, there's also a lot of courage behind that kind of transgression. Okay, okay. Um, then just moving on to, as you were saying, the, the second batch of texts or the Sikh text, the, the one that I think... Um, I want to spend a little bit of time on is the Tanakhanama. So there's a debate, or I, I haven't read the latest, but there used to be a debate about whether this is actually um, related to Guru Gobind Singh in terms of there's a traditional story to say Guru Gobind Singh essentially dictates to Bainandalal what is the Tanakhanama. Um, I haven't come across anything to verify that. Again, correct me if I'm wrong, if, if you know anything else, like feel feel free to step in. Um, but from what the little that I read, um, the Tankan Namma is also referred as the Nashit Namma or the Manual of Instructions. Um, it came about after the discovery of a manuscript uh, from the 18th century. Um, this is different to the texts that we've previously mentioned, as this is written in Punjabi and the Braj Badsha and not in Persian, uh, which I think pretty much all of his previous texts are in Persian. Um, there are questions regarding its authorship as the manuscript is currently housed um, at the Guru Nanak Dev University Library, Amritsar, and is actually dated to 1718. However, that manuscript is itself a copy of an earlier source who the author is unverifiable. So the Tanakhanama comes from a manuscript that they can date to about 1718. So that actually rules out the possibility of that manuscript having been um, dictated by Gregorian Sinji. However, it's a copy of an earlier text, which may have come from Gregorian Sinji, but is currently unverifiable. So um, I guess there's a question mark on that. But like, do you know anything about like the, the origins and its authenticity? Now, the interesting thing is that um, Karamjit Malhotra uh, has done a lot of research on this particular manuscript. and. The Tankanama is actually just a few pages long, so it shouldn't really be that significant. Uh, it's the Retnama that gives rules for the Khalsa to obey. Uh, it's just a few pages long, nothing major, it's not a book or anything like that. Um, yeah, it's a recorded conversation between Painandalal and Gurgubi Singh, where Painandalal asked questions about what Rehat, what rules should a, a Khalsa Sikh uh, follow, and then Gurgubi Singh answers, uh, which, which which uh, rules to follow. Now, the reason why this is such an interesting manuscript is that, like you say, that it's written 
The manuscript that we have is written three years after the fall of Banda Singh Bahadur uh, and his Raj. Um, so this is quite early on in the time of Sikh history. And the interesting thing that I can say is that this is just a copy. And we know that because there's a lot of errors in this text, uh, which means that it, this is not the original, because if it was the original, there wouldn't be that many errors in it. So this means that it's a, it's a copyist who just didn't do that well of a job. <laughs> like in terms of the numbering and so forth, like this is definitely a copy. Um, and then the question is, well, the original copy, when was that from? And I think most historians, at least in the Western world, will agree that this is most likely from the time of Guru Gobind Singh Ji. And the interesting thing is, and why this is important, is that this is uh, this is the Ratnama where Guru Gobind Singh Ji says that he will establish his own Raj. And the line, Raj Karika Khalsa Ki Rehina Koi, this is actually from that Ratnama. So, the idea that Guru Gobind Singh is proactively talking about the Khalsa being rulers of govern uh, of territories and governing territories, something most people will say starts with Banda Singh Bahadur and the early Khalsa. But if you can actually date this writing into the time of Guru Gobind Singh then it obviously means that Guru Gobind Singh gave sovereignty to his Sikhs um, without any discussion, so to speak. And this is why this is such a dramatic find. This is how I think... Uh, it's described in Western academia. This is a very dramatic find. Normally, uh, you wouldn't be able to find, like a lot of this talking about sovereignty and so forth is very prominent in later writings. But if you can actually pinpoint something all the way back to Guru Gobind Singh, that's obviously quite a dramatic find. Well, just being devil's advocate, um, I think like what you pointed out, which is quite interesting, is, is that it's written just after or a few years after the fall of Bandar Singh Bahadur. So, Let's ignore the fact that it's a copy for a second. Um, just just listening to what you've been saying, my kind of um, guess could be that this text was formed around the fall of Bandar Singh Bahadur in order to kind of write, like raise the spirits, kind of lift everybody. The format of a conversation between Bainandalal and Gurgobin Singhji kind of lends itself to some type of authenticity but i think also that format also for that time period would have been quite encouraging um but i think it'd be really interesting to see what further research says and suggests about that because as you said if they can connect it to the court and the time of guru robin singhji um i think that definitely like as you were saying has a dramatic impact on on, on everything really um but no okay um so Sticking with Bainandalal, obviously, and Guru Gobind Singh Ji, this question was sent in by, I think, about five or six different people when I said that we were doing um, a Bainandalal podcast. I'm sure you can guess what it is, but basically, but it, it, it bases around, did Bainandalal take Umbra? I can't find any historical references to indicate that he did. Um, the only thing that seems to exist is um according to Guruki Asakya, uh, by Nandalal arrives in Anandpur on the, the Basaki of the 29th of March 1682, which is obviously before the Basaki Amrits and Jad, um, and received Guru Gobind Singh's blessing. 1682 is most likely referring to by Nandal actually coming to join the court of Anandpur rather than um anything else. Um, which makes sense because in 1697, 
another scholar, Kanwar Sen, son of Geshwadas, um, also arrived at Anandpur to seek refuge from Aurangzeb. So that that kind of period, that time period of Bainandla joining in 1682 kind of adds up because of obviously what's happening. Now, putting that little bit aside, like what what can you what light could you shed on that? Like, did Bainandla take Amrit? Um, there's a Saki to suggest that oh, I can't remember it correctly, but basically Bainandla asks to take Amrit and Guru Gobind Singh Ji essentially says, like, you're good as you are, pretty much. Yeah, well, I mean. This is a question that is comes up quite a lot. And when you said seven people have asked that question, I kind of knew this is where we were going. Um, the problem is like, first of all, just like, why is that question being asked? And obviously because today we have, we associate a Khalsa with a true Sikh. Um, and then obviously by Nandalal being a, a Sikh, a Sikh of the Guru, he must have been a Khalsa. And then the question is, why doesn't he have the name Singh by Nandalal Singh? Um, now, that question probably makes a lot of sense today, but in the time of Guru Gobind Singh Ji, that question probably didn't make much sense because obviously, as you know, the world in, in which Guru Gobind Singh Ji uh, was and the world that he created around himself, diversity was just everything. So you had, like you said, you have Hindu scholars, you had Muslims, you had his Sikhs all sitting side by side, all being praised uh, and and, and rewarded and, and uh, engaging with the Guru in many different ways. Um, and there were Nanak, those that were later on called the Nanak Pantis, there were the Udasis, there were those who came Seva Pantis, there was the Nirmale, and each of them had their different uh, way of, of, of living, uh, different way of addressing Rehat and, and, and so forth. And, and, none of, and all of this was okay at the time. It wasn't that this idea of orthodoxy didn't really kick in until later. So there is this story, and I still haven't been, I talked about it on our last podcast, um, and I still haven't been able to find the source for it, but Bihara Singh Padam, uh, he mentions in one of his books, I think it's in the Gobind Sagar, he talks about, uh, he gives this Sakhi that Gurgobind Singh Ji, after the creation of the Khalsa, he, uh, he gives out this hukam that says all Sikhs should come to Anandpur fully armed um, and get ready to take uh, Amrit. And then by Nandalal and by Kaniya, who's he's the one who gave water to the Muslim uh, and the Mughal forces. Then by Nandalal and by Kaniya, they both show up in Anandapur and they take on their swords. Um, then Gurgoba Singh asked them, like, what are you doing? And they're like, Maharaji, we, we heard your hukam and then we obeyed your hukam. Then, then Gurgoba Singh uh, takes out a pen uh, an ink pen and said, this is your thing, like this is your sword and this is like what you will be fighting with. Um, and then from what I remember from the Sakhi, Guru Gobind takes the pen and stirs it in water and gives him Amrit with, with the pen and not with the sword. Um, so that's one Sakhi. And there, I came across another one, this is an early source as well, where you heard the story with Baikaniya. This is from a very early manuscript, but it didn't contain Bainandalal, so I'm still looking for that. So, um, but Piara Singh, like he, he was a very praised scholar, very honest and very um, genuinely one of the best scholars we've ever had. So I can't imagine he was making these things up. He must have seen it in the manuscript and just didn't put the source in for some reason. No, fair. Well, I, I was kind of expecting that type of answer, to be honest. Um, and I think then one of the um follow-up questions that someone had sent in which was basically so if Bainandla didn't take Amrath why then would he write 
something why would he write for the Khalsa so to speak um, and I was thinking about it and, and in my estimation I've kind of gone with the fact that it's not necessary because of the format is questions and answers I don't actually think Bainandalal is necessarily dictating if Bainandalal wrote it that is I don't necessarily think Bainandalal is dictating that I feel like as a scholar it's just like you and I we don't have like or anybody really you don't have to have like so I don't have to be trained in, I don't know, warfare to go and learn about military history of like World War One. Um, and I think it's a similar thing, which is you can write about the Khalsa and not necessarily be part of that. Um, but like, how would you connect the fact that Bainandalal is said to have written on one side um, and is yet not historically known to have taken number? I think I might be wrong here, so other listeners might challenge me on this, but I'm not sure that this it, this manuscript or this Tamkanama actually says it was written by Painandalal. It just it just records a conversation between Painandalal and Gurgubasindi. So there's nothing to suggest that it wasn't written by a third person listening to this conversation. So it's just the Guru and, and, and one of his poets, one of his finest poets, just talking about the Rehat. Um, and I think just because the name by Nandalal appears, we just automatically assume that it was written by him. Um, so I think that's probably uh, one way to, to look at it. No, fair enough. All right, well, kind of one of the, the, the last questions then, um, which is almost like an overview of all of by Nandalal's works is, so what for you um, are the biggest differences between the two um, types of work so we've kind of said that there's loosely a persian slash islamic set of works and on the other side there's kind of a uh, sikh slash punjabi set of works now for instance the tankar number says anyone who places the symbol of the turks on his head uh, will transmigrate forever whereas the zindagi number says faithful muslims of good countenance gather together in fridays for the sake of reading reading the namaz so on one hand in one text which, correct me if I'm wrong, Tanakhan Namba, if it is, and again, it's an assumption we've just obviously discussed that Tanakhan Namba may not necessarily be written by Bainadlal, but um, how do you connect those two together? On one hand, Bainadlal is saying, be a really good Muslim, and on the other hand, he's saying, if you wear a cap as a non-Muslim, and I guess perhaps that's the emphasis, um, then you'll be reincarnated forever. Well, I think we have to be very specific with the terminology here. So the first quote that you read, uh, this is from the uh, Ganjanam, I think. It, it doesn't talk about Muslims here. No, sorry, the words used is not Muslim, it's Mumineen. So it, it basically means Muslims, like pious Muslims. So the word is Mumineen. Now in the Tankanama, the word used is not Muslim either, it is uh, Turk. And Turk in that time, in majority of cases would be the Mughals. So when it talks about the Muslims, it's actually talking about the Mughals and they're basically saying, don't be like the Mughal rulers, don't adopt their culture, don't adopt to their social ways, don't adopt their uh, religion or their... It's basically just protecting the Khalsa identity from being contaminated by this corrupt Mughal elite uh, culture. So I think that is how you see it because Bainandalal, even if he didn't write it or not, Bainandalal was very... And a lot of Sikh scholars in the time, they were very 
fascinated, so to speak, by Islamic history, Islamic uh, fine arts and uh, poetry and so forth. Uh, this is why the word Muminin is used, but they weren't necessarily happy with the way that the Mughals were governing India, suppressing the people in the name of Islam and so forth. Uh, and this is how you kind of see the, the different difference. And this is why a lot of translations are horrible um, because they just translate Muminin and they translate Turk and they translate Khan and Pakan. All of them just becomes Muslim, uh, which kind of dumbs down these texts because it's very specific terminology that's used. And I think that also just connects back to what you were saying at the beginning of the podcast, which is a lot of the study required uh, in this area. You have to be very aware of the context and the cultural landscape and everything that goes with it. Um, so no, I can only um, thank you for that. Um, and also, again, this is, like I said, because the terminology is so specific, it also, in, in those texts that are not, like, at the surface level, they're not seek texts, but if you go into the specific terminology and see how Bainandalal is, is subverting a lot of traditional Sufi concepts, for instance, then you can see that this is not written by a, a Muslim. This is not written by a Sufi. And then it becomes apparent that this is a Sikh text. It just creates a lot of, it just takes a lot of hard work. Uh, obviously, by Nandalal, this this on purpose, uh, because this is very sophisticated poetry. And Louis Fennig even says this is poetry by Nandalal. It easily matches some of the finest Mughal poetry that was written. So we're talking about a very high level of po uh, Persian uh, poetry but again like just to anyone it's very it's very important that we that we're quite specific when we're looking at these words and not just translate them to any language obviously i know there's a difference if you're writing it if you're like writing something for the social media and if you're writing an academic paper or you're just talking to your friend sometimes you just have to do something quickly but like if if you if you're, especially if you're talking about another community you have to be very specific because otherwise it can come across as quite uh, yeah, racist, I was about to say. Um, yeah, no, I think you've touched upon something that's quite prevalent because um, earlier we was talking about a fine, the Bainandalal quote, talking about the cup of, um, like, give us the cup or bar, like bartender. Sometimes it's translated to be bartender or whatever. Um, and I've seen that quote be regurgitated on various social medias with, like, with various translations, some translated to be give us... Uh, give us a cup of dig, which obviously isn't correct to the translation because it's talking about wine. Um, and I think you're, you're right as well in terms of highlighting the correct nuance really does make a big difference because I think there's a lot of, I think there's a tendency to be quite uh, Islamophobic in, 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 in approach to Sikh history. Um, and I, I think once you read into the nuances of it, it's far more complex. So for argument's sake, Guru Gobind Singh Ji helped uh, Bahadur Shah become king. Uh, he had, but some, some of Guru Gobind Singh Ji's own Sikhs were in Bahadur Shah's army and vice versa. Um, Guru Gobind Singh Ji is said to have taken a donation of, I can't remember how much in weight, but quite a substantial amount of gold from uh, the Mughal soldiers. Um, so that, that's just what, like a few examples to show that the relationship isn't quite um, as black and white as we think it is. Again, very interesting because in, in the writings of Bainandala, and go, just going back to some of your early questions, in the writings of Bainandala, in the clear majority of them, when he's talking about pious people, when he's talking about the, um, uh, when he's talking about yeah, the faithful community and so forth, he obviously he uses words that are 
like on the surface level Muslim, so like the Ahli Khuda, the people of God. Usually you would think it's the Muslim. He's talking about a Sikh Sangat here, but he's just using Muslim uh, way to describe them. Um, and there's a lot of these different titles that he uses. Now, these are, on one level, this is very specific terminology, the people of Khuda and, and, and so forth. Um, the Mu'minin, I gave another example before. But in the later writings in the Khalsa period, it mostly just talks about the Turks, talks about the Turks. It doesn't use this very sophisticated and specific terminology anymore. It just talks about Turks. And obviously, if anyone reading would probably say it's talking about two different communities here. One is the ruling elites, the other one is the faithful community. And maybe the third one is just like the average Joe who just happens to be Muslim. Yeah, and you have to be very, again, very specific. Again, remember that example I gave earlier where it was a bit awkward for some of the uh, from some of the early uh, Sikh scholars because they were translating Muslim writings into into Gurmukhi and into like Sant Pasha or Baraj, and this was and they had to kind of hide that this was Muslim text that they were translating because obviously the Khalsa was a war with people who happened to be Muslim, Mughals, the Afghans, and so forth. And how did they? For them, it must have been quite awkward. Uh, and then how did they go about it? Like I said, they removed all the references to the Prophet Muhammad. And then they uh, just wrote like the saintly people have said. And then obviously anyone reading wouldn't say, well, who is this saint? It's probably some sadhu or whatever. It sounds really good. And then they will continue uh, reading it. Um, but it definitely shows that there was some kind of a conflict in the early days. Obviously we all know that, but like this is very interesting to see how did people maneuver in this conflict. Uh, between different communities, and again, like we see it later on with the um, with the missiles uh, when they took power in Punjab. So we talked about this in an earlier podcast. So when the missiles took power; they kept the old bureaucracy in its place. So all the uh, government officials from the Afghan Empire they were left there; they weren't fired. Um, like when you when the if I remember correctly, when the Americans took over Iraq, they just fired all the soldiers. Of Saddam Hussein's army, this like dismantled the the uh, Iraqi army, and they also dismantled the Iraqi bureaucracy, and that's why the civil war erupted uh, in Iraq after the uh, after the war, right? So most people in the Iraq war didn't die from the actual war; they died from the civil war that came afterwards. Uh, it's the same with Afghanistan, if I remember correctly. Like uh, after the Soviets have left it, then a civil war came, and that's where most people died, and that's where a lot of the Sikhs left. Um, they left uh, Afghanistan. This, it was during the civil war. It wasn't during the Af the Soviet war. And long story short, what happened is that when the missiles took over Punjab, they left the bureaucracy in its place so that business could just continue as always. Now, some of the Sikh scholars at the time, they didn't like that because the people from the old regime were mostly Muslims or Qatris, right? So you have people, uh, the, the Sikh scholars at the time saying, we need to like replace the official script with the Gunmukhi, for instance. Uh, because otherwise, obviously that will put the Sikhs into the right positions then. Uh, and as long as it was kept Persian, it was mostly be the, the, the Muslims and, and the Qataris from the old regime. So again, you see like these different traits of how people try to maneuver about this very awkward relationship with Islamic culture or Muslim culture on the one hand, and obviously just being faithful Sikhs on the other, being aware that so much harm had been done to, to the Sikh people acting in the name of uh, Islam. 
Um, and yeah, people did in different ways they tried to maneuver and navigate within it. And I think this is one of the reasons why a lot of the Sikhs were divorced from the writings of Painandalal, because even though we knew in the Sikh writings, it was still in a, in a foreign language. It was using foreign uh, cultural references and foreign yeah, metaphors. And again, I mean, just reading poetry, you, you recognize this as well. Just reading poetry, it's not just about reading it and understanding it. It's also about understanding the subtleties and the references that are being made uh, and so forth. Um, and obviously with the Sikhs, if they stopped studying this kind of literature, then obviously they wouldn't get the, uh, the, the references either. And again, like I said before, this is why the descendants of Pindandalal, they started to translate all of his writings after the fall of the Sikh empire. Because like they say, Sikhs have stopped learning how to speak Persian. Yeah. So they have to learn it again, but doing it in Punjabi this time. No, no definitely. Um, so I've gone through all of the questions that I had planned to, to discuss with you. There were a few that later on, which we'd actually already covered kind of earlier on in the podcast. Um, I just want to check before we wrap up, if there's anything that you want to mention, anything you want to talk about. Obviously, I know you've been busy with the Anandpur Art Project. Um, maybe you just want to spend a couple of minutes and just tell everyone about that. Yeah, so um, I think in the Anandpur Darbar, and I've been keep saying this to people, if anyone's following me, um, they've heard this many times, that one of the things that characterizes the Anandpur Darbar is this very proactive focus on, uh, on diversity, as you would call it today. Um, in the first painting that we published by Kirat Code, you can definitely see that there's like, there's Muslim poets, there's Sikh poets there, and there's Hindu poets. Uh, and even like, if you go into like the skin colors, you can see that eth ethnically, they're also from different places of the Indian subcontinent. So again, this is something that we've been trying to promote quite a lot. Uh, and by Nandalal is very, significant in this regard and, and this is why we need to promote him much more and this is why i'm happy that you've done this uh, podcast as well because he is this like you said in the beginning he is this man who's born in a hindu family so religiously he's a hindu in the in the early years religiously he's a hindu but culturally he's probably a muslim and then faithfully he becomes a sikh later on uh, this whole mix of identities, which for him is not necessarily a problem. Uh, and this is something the Guru recognizes, obviously. Uh, this is something I think we need to have more of. Um, because he embodies that kind of openness and inclusivity um, towards the world and obviously towards oneself at the same time. Um, we have a painting coming up in the Anandpur Art Project. Uh, like I said, where Painandalal is, is there seated, um, reciting a poem from the uh, from the Divani Hafiz. Uh, so he's reciting a Sufi text here uh, from a manuscript. And then just opposite him, you have his student, Ghiasuddin, which I mentioned was written out of Sikh history. And now we kind of put him back into, into the Sikh history through this art piece here. Um, and um, yeah, I think we, we will publish it by the time this... Uh, this uh, podcast is, is out. Um, and I hope obviously that this will spark some debate and spark some uh, curiosity in who were these people. And obviously one thing that we need, which we, de which we desperately need is for more people to learn how to speak um, Persian, yeah. So like in 2013, uh, that's, I made a website called pinandalal.com. 
Um, and on that website, uh, even then, we, we were talking about the need for more people to know Persian, know how to read the Persian script. And one of my friends, um, he was actually teaching online courses on, in, in, in Farsi um, at the time as a part of that project of Um And I think it would be so vital if someone else could take up that um, take up that uh, torch and just continue teaching Farsi to Sikhs because we need that vidya amongst Sikhs. So if anyone's listening, if you know Persian, you know someone who knows Persian, um, yeah, let's try to see if we can make some classes. Uh, and especially in a COVID world, uh, we're all used to just doing things online anyway. So it shouldn't be an issue. Back in 2013, when we started, like even then doing things online was a bit awkward at the time. Now it's just normal. So I have to say thank you to Sadnam, but before we wrap up, I should have probably mentioned this at the beginning of, of the podcast, but to everyone listening, please go and subscribe um, and hit the notification button on YouTube because obviously that helps us a lot. Um, but with that out of the way, I just want to say thank you to Satnam for taking his time out this evening to have this podcast. Thank you for having me.